You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have Bibles, uh, you can make your way to the book of Isaiah. Chapter 35 uh, is where we'll be uh, in today's text. Uh, that's page 595 on one of those black hardcover Bibles uh, if, you're, if you're using one of those. But just as you're making your way there, something I'd invite you to consider this morning, uh, the continued embrace of Christmas carols is a cultural phenomenon that I don't really understand. That I don't really understand. We live in what sociologists and researchers are terming an increasingly post-Christian society. And yet, Christmas carols remain largely this widely appreciated and socially acceptable way to proclaim Christianity in the public square. On the radio, uh, in coffee shops, in malls and stores, you've probably already for like a month been hearing Christmas carols in the various public places that you frequent. For most of the year, Christianity is considered outdated, backward, and even dangerous by many people. But for two months a year, way too early, right after Halloween ends, right after Halloween ends, the gospel of Jesus Christ is then broadcast across the land in mass via Christmas carols. On top of that, it seems like every American recording artist for the past 75 years or more, regardless of their faith or lack thereof, has their own Christmas album. Have you noticed this? Barbara Streisand has a Christmas album. Barbara Streisand, she and her family, they're Jewish. So you'd think there might be a conflict of interest for her to sing Silent Night and Ave Maria. But sure enough, in the 60s, she sang those songs on her Christmas album. Neil Diamond uh, is also Jewish. That's actually something I didn't know uh, when a couple years ago I found this video of him from the early 90s singing Joy to the World with this massive church choir behind him. Not even at that point knowing his religious affiliation, the whole video, I'll, I'll send it to you if you want to see it, the, the whole video feels really awkward because he's singing this 200-year-old Christmas hymn about the earth receiving her king in Jesus Christ, and he's singing that like a lounge singer. Like he's got this little pop in his step, and at one point I was like, did he just do a jazz square? Like, like what, are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? And then more importantly, why can't I get Jordan to do that here? Because I've been asking him for years to put a jazz square into his, into his leading and just can't quite get there. I'm, I'm convinced that one of the primary reasons for this continued embrace of Christmas carols is because we as a culture aren't really listening. We aren't really listening. We're either ignorant of or we're actively suppressing the truths that are contained in these songs. We like the melodies, perhaps, the tradition, the memories, maybe, that these songs invoke. But many of our family members and neighbors and coworkers and friends feel no obligation to actually do something with the meaning of these words, to really wrestle with what these words are, are saying. So what about us? What about you? What about me? Are we really 
listening. This morning, we're kicking off an Advent series that we're calling Christ of the Carols. Uh, This will be a little bit of a different kind of series for us here at Liberty Church. Each week, we're going to look at a famous Christmas carol, the biblical truths that that carol springs from, and then how a deeper knowledge of what we're singing, we hope, by the grace of God, will renew and grow our awe and our anticipation and our wonder of this great mystery that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. An author named Jen Wilkin writes this. She says, The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The heart cannot love what the mind does not know. So my hope and prayer is that this series will help your mind know more fully so that your heart might love more fully Jesus Christ and this beautiful, amazing reality that he took on flesh and entered into this world. This morning, we're looking at the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. You have an insert in your bulletin with the verses printed on one side and then the passage of Isaiah 35 printed on the other. The original two verses of Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which as you have them printed, are verses one and four. One and four. They were written in the year 1744 by the prolific hymn writer Charles Wesley. And actually, to call Charles Wesley a prolific hymn writer is a massive understatement. It's estimated that over the course of his life, Charles Wesley wrote close to 9,000 hymns. 9,000. According to a former Duke Divinity School professor, he would have had to have written an average of 10 lines of verse per day for 50 years to pull that off. For this hymn in particular, Wesley found himself overwhelmed by the condition of the world around him. As one author summarizes it, he was surrounded by scenes of homelessness, orphans, and squalid poverty. 18th century England was racked with weak religion, rampant sin, and a callous indifference to the suffering of the lower classes. And so this hymn for Charles Wesley became his cry for Jesus to come again and to make right the world. Let me, as we begin this morning, read those original two verses of this hymn. You can follow along with me on this insert. It's verses 1 and 4 as they're printed here. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation Hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. As you hear in those words, these verses look both backward and forward. In some of the lines, we're imagining ourselves in the place of the people of Israel, awaiting the advent, the first advent, the arrival, the coming of the Messiah. In other lines, we're celebrating that fulfillment of Jesus as the Messiah. And then in still others, we're celebrating, we're, we're looking again, I'm sorry, to a day where Jesus will come again, bring his kingdom, and set his people free, put an end to all the evil and the suffering that remains. So to put it another way, 
This is a carol about Advent foretold and Advent fulfilled. Advent foretold and Advent fulfilled. And it was a rather obscure verse in the book of Haggai, minor prophet, that was the initial prompt for Charles Wesley to write what he did. But as he wrote, there's a number of texts that are interwoven into the fabric of this song. One of them is Isaiah chapter 35, and we'll spend the rest of our morning there. So it's on page 595 in those black hardcover Bibles, if you haven't made your way there yet. Or you can follow along on the back of that insert. The words are printed there for you as well. But I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Isaiah chapter 35, beginning in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, your vision of peace and wholeness comes to us in sweeping revelations like here in Isaiah 35 and also in tiny signs of hope. Kindle our hearts that we might be a hopeful people. Keep us from growing weary of waiting so that we do not miss the glory of your appearing. Even so, we pray today, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. So let's consider the truth of this text, the truth of this song, in two key points this morning. Advent foretold and Advent fulfilled. First, Advent foretold. Uh, the word Advent, of course, means arrival or coming. And so the opening line of this hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, really is a summary of the, entire New, of the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament. Though God's people did not know exactly who, or exactly when, or exactly how, they looked forward to the day when the Messiah, the Anointed One of God, would come. So just how long has this been expected? Like we sing in that song. Just how long? Since the Garden of Eden. When humanity believed the serpent's lie, when humanity rebelled against God and plunged the world into sin, God pronounced the consequences, pronounced the curses that resulted from that. And they were toil in our work. 
and pain in our childbirth. But then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God immediately foretells the advent of a deliverer. The woman, Eve, will bear a son. Satan, the serpent, will strike at that son's heel, but the son will crush the head of that serpent. So ever since that day, which is the same horrible day that sin entered the world, the people of God have been crying out for that snake crusher, that deliverer, to come. We then see this woven throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the history of the people of Israel. So in the Exodus, 400 years in slavery and longing for freedom, longing for a deliverer to set God's people free. And God raised up Moses in response to those cries. Centuries later, the author of Hebrews writes that though Moses was faithful in all of God's house, Jesus is the greater Moses. He's the greater Moses. After the exodus in the wilderness and then the the conquest of the promised land, there was the era of the judges. And this cycle in the book of Judges of rebellion and rescue over and over again, it's marked throughout by the people crying out to God to send a deliverer, to raise someone up to set them free, to deliver them from that oppression. The same thing was true when Assyria, the nation of Assyria, conquered the ten northern tribes of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. And then a couple decades later, right around 700 BC, Assyria invaded the two southern tribes of Judah. And it was during this time that the prophet Isaiah wrote, living and ministering in the southern kingdom, he witnessed this fall of the northern. And by the Spirit of God, he saw the same fate on the horizon for Judah, which would ultimately come to pass when it was conquered a little more than 100 years later by Babylon. But Isaiah didn't just look forward to see that coming on the horizon. He looked even farther into the future. His name, Isaiah, means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. And Isaiah foretold the day when God would bring an even more comprehensive and complete salvation to his people. As the introduction of the ESV Study Bible puts it, the whole book of Isaiah portrays God's plan as a story that is headed somewhere. Namely, toward the coming of the final heir of David, who will bring light to the Gentiles. The book of Isaiah is a vision of hope for sinners through the coming Messiah, promising for the ransomed people of God a new world where sin and sorrow will forever be forgotten. So this is why, if you're you're curious during this Advent season, if you've never noticed this before, when you read an Advent devotional or you attend church during the Advent season or any kind of Christian Advent material, a ton of that comes from the book of Isaiah. A ton of that, that scriptural basis and text comes from Isaiah. We get some of the clearest and most recognizable prophecies about the Advent of Jesus in this book. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And now here in Isaiah 35, verse 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. God himself will come, Isaiah prophesied. 
with judgment and justice against all the sin that remains and ruins God's good creation, but he will come and save his people. And Israel longing, as that song puts it, for strength and consolation, and all of the earth longing for hope and for joy. It was promised and foretold that the Messiah would come and bring exactly that. If that's Advent foretold, then second, let's talk about Advent fulfilled. About seven centuries after Isaiah, in Matthew's gospel, as we heard even today in the words of encouragement, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, this carpenter who's betrothed, who's engaged to Mary, appears to Joseph in a dream and says of the Virgin Mary's child, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And as Matthew writes immediately after those words, this is in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7. Jesus is the one, as Wesley's hymn puts it, born to set his people free, born his people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. But Matthew's gospel is not the only gospel account to attest to this prophecy, to this fulfillment of Jesus. In Luke's gospel, chapter 4, Jesus reads from the scroll of what? Of Isaiah. And he reads from Isaiah about proclaiming good news to the poor and liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind. Things that are echoed in Isaiah chapter 35 as well. And Jesus then sits down and he says, Today, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Or perhaps even more incredible, in John's gospel, Chapter 12, Jesus speaks of Isaiah's prophecies. And Jesus says that when Isaiah had this vision of the exalted king on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, or when Isaiah had this vision of the suffering servant, the famous prophecies of Isaiah chapter 53, that what Isaiah saw when he saw that was the glory of Jesus himself. Behold, your God will come and save you. The ransomed of the Lord shall return. Those once enslaved will be bought back out of their slavery and will return home. And it's the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that accomplishes this. He, he inaugurates the kingdom of God. He brings this salvation that's been foretold and promised so many centuries prior. But as we know, this is not the end of the story. And that's why Charles Wesley, writing 1,700 years after Jesus' first advent, and you and I, as we will sing this song at the end of our service today, singing 2,000 years after this first advent, are still longing and pleading. Are we not? We're still longing and pleading. All of the petitions of Wesley's verses, come, Jesus, release us, let us find rest Bring your gracious kingdom. Rule in all of our hearts alone. Raise us to your glorious throne. Those are just as true for us to sing today as they were for the people of Israel 2,000 years and more ago. See, this posture is not just a summary of the Old Testament. It's also a summary of the New. And it's remained the posture of the church ever since. In fact, think about this, since the Garden of Eden, there's really only ever been this tiny sliver of a window where the people of God have not been crying out for, for Jesus to come. 
They cried, come for generations. Jesus came in his first advent and fulfilled, but then ascending back to heaven, ascending back to the right hand of the Father, the cry of the church immediately once again becomes what? Come, Lord Jesus, come again. So this is our, we feel so distant from the people in the Old Testament in particular, but also the new. We feel so like, I don't understand their life and their world. And that's true. There's a lot of things that we can miss from a cultural context kind of perspective. But this is our camaraderie with Adam and Eve in the garden. This is our camaraderie with the Israelite slaves in Egypt, with the conquered and oppressed people in the era of the judges, and with the people of Judah in Isaiah's day. Who are the people of God? We are those longing for the day when the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We are those still longing for the day where desert wastes become lush and fertile land, where the highway of God, the highway to heaven, rises up out of the desert land around it and becomes so obvious to us that even fools like you and me can find it and can stay on it. In Jesus, these days have begun. Praise God. And all of our ancestors in faith would envy the fact that we get to look back on that fulfillment of the first advent. And yet, we still are longing for the second. Not the humble incarnation of Jesus' birth, but what we are longing for is the glorious return of Jesus as king to complete this work of salvation. Revelation chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters in the Bible, if you read those and put them side by side next to Isaiah 35, they sound a lot alike. Revelation 21.4, Jesus says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Revelation 22 verses 3 through 5, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And they will, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And then the last words of the entire Bible, Revelation 22, verse 20, Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. And the church responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The last line of the Bible is the first in Wesley's hymn. And that's true because this longing and anticipation is meant to characterize our lives not only for these few weeks a year in the Advent season, but each and every day until that second fulfillment happens. As the people of God in this time and place, our rearview mirrors give us this full view to the first advent foretold and fulfilled. But our forward-looking view, our windshield view, if you will, should be saturated each and every day with Jesus' second advent, an advent that has been foretold, but that has not yet been fulfilled. And so how then should we live? What, what should be the quality and posture of our lives? We could answer that in a lot of different ways this morning, and Scripture does give us a lot of answers for that. But for today, consider this. It means that we must live as people of confident expectation, or in a word, we must be people of hope. Of hope. Hope is this theme of the, the first candle in the Advent wreath. 
But hope is also one of these words that, that maybe like Christmas carols in our culture can become one that we, we say a lot or use a lot without really considering its meaning. What is the meaning of hope, biblically speaking? What I like to often say at, at, at weddings is that there are some people in life who are naively hopeful. Uh, lots of hope, lots of excitement about how good things are meant to be, how good things can be, but oblivious to reality. How broken things remain in their own lives and in the world. How much work Jesus is still going to have to do to make all things new. There are others who are cynical realists. Realistic about the brokenness and the mess and the cost it's going to require to fix that. But cynical and calloused, perhaps without hope at all. And you probably experience both of these things, naive hope and cynical realism in your life as I do, but each of us certainly falls to one side of that more than the other, and you probably already know which one you are just by me saying that. Far deeper than naive hope and in perpetual combat with cynical realism, the gospel of Jesus Christ is news of realistic hope. Realistic hope. The salvation of Jesus is not just wishful thinking. It's not some kind of pipe dream that things are just going to magically get better. I love how Steve Huber said this a few years back. When Jesus came the first time, he entered into this world, not a Thomas Kincaid painting. Right? When Jesus came into the world, he entered this broken, messed up reality that you and I inhabit and contribute to, not a Thomas Kincaid painting. The, this place that, that when we open our eyes and ears like Charles Wesley did when he, write, when he wrote this hymn, we're overwhelmed, are we not, by how much things are not yet the way they're meant to be. God will come and save you, Isaiah wrote, and in Jesus Christ he has. So now, when exiled on the island of Patmos, the apostle John can write, he will come and wipe away every tear from your eyes and death will be no more and you will see his face and you will reign with him forever and ever. And in the face of all the brokenness that remains, the church can say with all integrity, with all confident expectation, with all hope, amen, come Lord Jesus. As you know, I'm sure, the gravitational pull of your life and my life will be away from this kind of hope. Not toward it. And so among other things, the season of Advent affords us the opportunity to be renewed in hope. And I pray that you will be, maybe even in these precious moments we have this morning, to do the hard work, and I would call you to this this season, even today, the hard work of remembering and being stirred up by way of reminder that God came into the world to save. The hard work of anticipation that God will indeed come again to save. This is why we should pay attention to the words of hymns like this one. They are fuel to renew your hope. They are fuel to renew your hope. And singing this song together is a way that we embody Isaiah 35 verses 3 and 4. To strengthen the weak hands, to make firm the feeble knees, to say to those who have an anxious heart, like the men and women sitting around you and next to you this morning, be strong, fear not, your God will come. If today you find yourself in that place with weak hands and feeble knees and an anxious heart, if you find yourself despairing 
or cynical, overwhelmed by the condition of the world or the circumstances of your own life, then may the words of this prophecy from Isaiah, may the words of this hymn strengthen and renew you in hope. Join your voice as we sing these words in a few moments. Join your voice today with the people of God, not only in this room, but in every age since the Garden of Eden. And cry, come thou long expected Jesus, because Christ has come, and Christ surely will come again. Amen. Let me pray for us. Eternal God, We need your grace and your Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. Keep us awake and alert. Keep us watching for your kingdom. Make us strong in faith. Renew our hope even today so that when Christ comes in glory to judge the earth, we may joyfully give him praise. We want to be those who remain strong in faith and hope on the day that you come again, Jesus. We confess our need for you to do that. You are the one who came into the world. You are the one who will come again. You are the one who lives and reigns forever with the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.